Hey, Sopranos fans and Sopranos podcast fans, I'm Chris D'Amato, one of the hosts of the Sopranos podcast, and I wanted to kick off today's episode by just mentioning a couple quick little housekeeping things about our podcast here before we get into the main content of today's episode. So first of all, if you haven't followed us on social media, please do so. It's at the Sopranos podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Sopranos podcast, no the, on Twitter. We have a couple exciting ideas about expanding our show and giving a few extra avenues, a little bit more content, some exclusive content. We're working out the details, but we're going to be making some announcements on some of that stuff probably this summer. So you're going to want to follow our pages if you don't follow them already. So go ahead and do that. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're all very excited about what's coming, and I think you will be too, so please stay tuned. Second thing, listen, I apologize that this uh, came out two days late. Listen, we're the little Sopranos podcast that could, okay? We're not fancy schmancy over here. We're three blue-collar guys from Jersey, storytellers, Italian-American guys who are putting this thing together for your enjoyment. I try to stick to an every-other-Sunday schedule. Didn't work out this week. My car exploded on the highway. No, I'm not kidding. It was like a Sam Rothstein casino-style deal where I saw the smoke and I had like a couple seconds to get out of my car before it ignited in a fireball. So I'm okay. I survived. My car is ash. It doesn't exist anymore, but I'm okay. But anyway, long story short, I didn't have the weekend I thought I was going to have, and the episode came out a few days late. So me, what are you going to do? We're going to stick to the every other Sunday thing as much as we can. But understand, this ain't no big corporate podcast. We don't got no big names over here. We're just three average Joes doing our thing. So if you like that, stick around. Got a lot of great shit coming your way. Last thing I wanted to mention is about our audio consistency. Now, you may notice when you listen to this episode that it's going to sound a little different than some of our previous episodes. When we started this podcast, it was a way for three friends to kind of get together during a very weird time in our country, the pandemic, and talk about a show we all love. And the style of the show has been tuning the audio so that you feel like you're in a room with the three of us listening to the conversation. Now, Life is starting to get back to normal now. We don't have hours on end of dead time wondering what we're going to do, how we're going to occupy our days, make each day feel different than the next. The pandemic is still ongoing but winding down. So what that means is the three of us are getting back to something resembling a normal life again. And that means scheduling issues. So once in a while, going forward, some of the episodes are going to sound like we're all kind of together in the same room and you're sitting at the table with us. And others are going to sound like it's an online call because we didn't have the time to get together. We don't all live close to each other geographically. All the, you know, we're not we're a couple hours away from each other. So it's not always going to be convenient with all of life's events to get together every time, especially when some of us are, you know, I'm an artist, I'm an actor, I keep odd hours. Uh, Jordan's an educator. So, you know, we just, we're not always able to get together in person. So as far as, you're not going to get bad quality, mind you, just consistency. It may not sound exactly the same episode to episode. If you can deal with that, pull up your big boy, big girl pants and listen to a show that doesn't sound exactly the same every single week, great. We're happy to have you. If that does bother you, well, go fuck yourself then, because I got through a lot of trouble to make this podcast. All right, everybody, we are back. I am gobsmacked by what I just witnessed. It is the Sopranos podcast, season two, episode 12, Passages. 
That was not a marriage made in heaven. That quote was given by Carmela Soprano in a beautiful scene at the end of this incredible episode, Night in White Satin Armor. It's the penultimate episode of season two, written by Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess, who I want to hug, and directed by Alan Coulter. Woo! I think we all messaged each other after watching this. This was like, yeah. good God, because we don't all... we. Inside baseball, to those of you who listen to the podcast and don't know us, we don't all live together or even close to each other, actually. But we were right on top of it after seeing this one. I think we all felt it. I mentioned last episode that this was a top fiver for me, and I think that comment stands. But let's go around here. Initial thoughts on what I consider to be a high art classic of the Sopranos canon. You know, I'm kind of a douchebag. And when people say that they like something, there's something in my personality that like goes off and like I automatically have to like try not to like it. I don't know what that is about me. I don't know what that says about me as a person, but everyone had made such a big deal over the night in white satin armor. I would hear you all talk about it. I I mean, I hadn't seen it since probably it first aired. Uh, I only knew of it because of its infamy in the Sopranos canon. And I was sort of determined to be like, yeah, I'm going to go into this one and I'm going to like have a problem with it or something. I don't know why I'm like this, but I watched the episode and it is just overwhelmingly good good quality exciting the story beats they play so well and it is also and i did not remember this a very emotional episode like it's got a lot of great soft deep moments that really create this sense of dynamism uh between these these big moments of great action that have been lauded for years it's simultaneously personal as it gets and operatic in a certain way it's it's yeah just beautiful the way it plays out like that paul i think it's very important as an episode because it points to something that i think our listeners should know about which is the danger of keeping firearms in your home for sex (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we we just we just want our listeners to be safe we don't judge anybody we just want you to be safe that was a double-sided dildo nothing like that would have happened Sorry. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Apologize um, for that. And uh, yeah. So, and we're this episode to me ranks right up there with Sopranos episodes, not as an episode necessarily that stands alone in terms of its storyline. David Chase apparently wanted the Sopranos to be much more a show where there were episodes like College, where a storyline stood on its own and had its own interior quality. This, however, is an episode that. As you guys just mentioned, there's an emotional power to it. And a lot of that emotional power, as as well as the power of the storytelling, is, I think, incredibly impactful because what, what is being paid off here is storylines that have been building this whole season, and in some cases, since the first episode of the series. This is long arc storytelling at its finest. This episode, to me, is a really good example of why and how The Sopranos long arc 13 episode storyline season format has become the gold standard in the past 20 years of TV. This episode and how it stands out is why. Well said, Paul. It's also another example of them really slamming a a grand slam of a penultimate. We had Isabella last season. We had Night in White Satin Armor. This kind of continues the tradition in many ways, a more explosive and energetic episode i think than funhouse funhouse the next one we're going to talk about is excellent so you know no spoilers yet but 
that's not so that's not to run down Funhouse at all, but it is to say that these penultimate episodes have a little something extra, a little extra stank on them. Yeah. Uh, and man, man, oh man, is it good. It it just leaves you like, wow. And it's one of those episodes as a as an artist and a creator, it's it's one of those things that leaves you a little. I know this is silly because they we're talking about such geniuses here, but when I see something this good on TV, it's sort of like I get jealous. Like how, how do you even write something like that? Sure. And I feel the same way about uh, the finale too. Funhouse is so creative and out of the box, but we're talking about night and white set and armor today. And this episode just explodes in every way that it's good to explode. And I'm so excited to dig into it. We have basically three things going on in this one. It's, it's, this escalation of the Tony Richie situation, Janice. We have Tony Arena Carmella triangle thing happening there. And we have Pussy with a rotten case of Stockholm syndrome. So why don't we start with that? Since I think the main event is clearly what, what happens with Tony and Richie. I also, you know what? Last kind of addendum on initial thoughts. In a way, this could have even been a finale. You know, if it weren't for the pussy thing or if they if a less creative show wanted to drag the pussy thing out another season, they maybe could have. But I felt so satisfied and and cathartic after this was over. I was like, that could have been a finale if they wanted to just stop there. It almost it still would have worked. I mean, there would have been some dangling threads, but Mm. it was it felt there was a finality to it, especially because Janice, who came in on the premiere, leaves on a bus, you know, Mm. so. But anyway, on to the... Yeah, it's uh, certainly, there's certainly finality for Richie. Um, <laughs> he, he, he went to pieces, the poor guy. Um, yeah, so the, the, there is something, there's definitely something to that. There's a big payoff in that regard. And uh, I guess with Pussy storyline, we're seeing some of those lingering qualities. Definitely, as you mentioned, the Stockholm Syndrome effect uh, and I think Patty Hearst gets a mention, yeah. which is fun. Yeah. And in a theme that's really big in this episode, I think uh, loyalty and betrayal keep sort of ominously close quarters, Yeah, I guess. So it's actually perfect that Big Pussy is, in spite of how these guys, these gangsters tend to be outlaw in some respects, Jordan, I think, has pointed out that many or most all of them are basically followers. And this is Pussy working on that Bob Dylan line from the last episode, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah. And that's his weird transition here, that as much as we don't like Skip, Skip is absolutely in a weird, awkward position, and he's absolutely right about the weird way that Pussy is manifesting this uh, difficulty. On that note, Paul, I did want to mention, because we have gone out of our way, rightfully so, especially Jordan, to shit on Skip. Uh, and I have to say, this is the first episode I felt a little something for him. I think there is a certain nope, not not as like <laughs> he's shaking nope. his head going nope. absolutely not. I don't mean in a sense that I suddenly care about this character, but I mean that he found himself kind of feeling something for Pussy a little bit. Like even he saw how pathetic uh, it was that what was happening to Sal and and even and Frank. Cubitoso, his boss, who we haven't seen, I think, since season one. He was uh, the Fed who played Tony the tape of his mother at the, in the uh, finale of one, says, uh, you know, these things can work two ways, Skip. You can find yourself getting too close. The Feds are a business, Tony, as Neil Mink said, and mm-hmm. they want a return on that investment. It's a cold world, not unlike that of the gangsters. And yeah, uh, I mean, it's interesting for sure, Skip feels this awkward thing, but as Kubitoso points out, there's no place for it. I am so turned off by Pussy 
in this episode. It's not just that he's a rat and not just that he's working with the feds, but that he's now doing so uh, more willingly, trying to reimagine himself in this way, which is just kind of gross and unseemly. I, I honestly, I think I thought more of the character prior to this. Sure. I think that's a fair analysis. I'm going to, I'm going to, maybe this is an appropriate comparison. Maybe it isn't, but for you Game of Thrones fans, spoilers, uh, I, it made me actually in a weird way think of Theon or Reek. Sure. Yeah, uh, I see that. He, he was so at a certain point when you're desperate and you're in enough and you're in captivity long enough, you stop thinking about escape and more or less, how can I make the best of this situation? Cause I'm fucked. I'm in it. And I think uh, we're seeing pussy in that moment where it's like, well, this is this is the future here. This is this is what's happening in my life. He's he's all in at this point. He realizes that the foreseeable future for pussy is he's a snitch. He's he's going to jail. He's going to serve his time. So he's trying to make the best of it. Uh, He wants to climb whatever new hierarchy he finds himself in. Uh, It's just sad because he doesn't he's delusional. I mean, he has no sense of reality and in, in how that's just not going to work out for him. He's not going to get what he wants. Yeah, I, I guess what I mean to say is that up to this point, he has been playing both sides against the middle and we have really seen his resigned and depressed nature about having to do this. Mm. It is in that pitiful reimagining of himself that I just, I don't know, I can't get on board with the character. I mean, I'm, I'm certain I have sympathy for him and I do feel bad, but at the same time, it's, I just, I really lose a lot of love for the character. I mean, they really set you up for something more that you're kind of like, yeah, we're, we're I think we're done here, you know? Mm. I think these are all excellent points. And in some of the bigger storylines in this episode that take up more space, there is talk about, direct talk about denial. And I think denial also comes out of, as you mentioned, Chris, these very stressful, maybe untenable situations that we don't want to wrestle with. And that's a place where Big Pussy is. He can't see it, even though maybe he can see a certain denial in the way that Tony perceives Richie. Uh, It's hard to see our own denial. It's hard to see our own blind spots. That's why they're our blind spots. But as Jordan pointed out, it's kind of awkward, makes me feel a little dirty watching it. Um, because it is so pitiful. It is definitely a regression for the character. And when Skip points out the reality at the end, we see that Big Pussy is broken. He's dead inside. And this reminds me of something I think Jordan said about this very storyline a couple of episodes ago. This can't go on Yeah, like this. And it does not, it obviously feels fills me with dread both to see it and to see the payoff where Skip is awkwardly trying to talk him up or maybe cheer him up a bit. I can show you statistics like he barely believes the happy talk he's giving himself and pussy just again is uh, spent. Mm. Fun little note here. People outside of New Jersey love when I drop these. So I'm going to drop another one, a little geographical point. Uh, Again, I don't, you don't hold these against the show because when you're scouting locations, you want a perfect location for a scene. You don't really, you're not thinking about the larger geography for 98% of the audience who don't live in the North Jersey area. But I do want to mention a little uh, secret here is that where pussy brings skip a bottle of scotch in a rainy alleyway, you could literally spit 
on that spot from Satriales. It's like two doors down. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought, like, that's yet another, it was like the party store in Commendatory. It's like, mm-hmm. I gotta go all the way out to the party store so somebody's gonna see you. And it was like, you can see the Bing from the front steps of the party store. <laughs> it's, so it's, it's another one of those fun things. They found like a great alleyway in an area where they normally film. They probably had a good relationship with the town and uh, of Kearney and um, just shot in that alley. But I thought that was funny. It's like literally anybody could have looked down that alley and saw that <laughs> if you're, if you know the geography. But yes, yeah, so he brings them the scotch. They're talking. And then in a funny juxtaposition, by the way, Sal t- uh, Skip turns down Pussy's gift. And we come to find out in the next scene where we see Skip that Tony sends a meat platter uh, for every special occasion. I think that's so funny. It's so sassy. <laughs> um, yeah, just very underhanded Tony tactics there. Uh, but yeah, they mentioned Patty Hearst and Stockholm Syndrome. And I think those are the first two scenes of this story beat. Do we, Puss- do we think Pussy's ideas of like working for the fed are like legitimate like this is like i guess he's really deluded himself i guess he's really thinking like wow i could turn this into something right he talks about you know speaking engagements in different places and i'm just like oh my god man you are so gone i i guess he's really trying to imagine a different future i just think it's so i i don't know i did not I did not really see this coming from the character. You know what I mean? What, it, what's yeah? I, I don't know. What's the alternative for him? It's it's death, right? I mean, it is it's, death. It's 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 make the best of this or die. Uh, yes, <laughs> I mean it's a great question. I and similarly, I feel odd watching it. Not that it's not credible, but that it it is definitely strange. That said, I think this episode in particular, part of its genius, is reflecting how all of these characters in their denial systems are strange in a way. How is it that Richie April is so legitimately offended that Tony doesn't want him around his kids when operationally Richie spends this entire episode trying to murder Tony the way that anybody does anything? They talk themselves into it. Mm. So that's how denial systems, I guess, build power in all of us in some way. And, um, the way it works here. There's a lot of delusion in this whole lifestyle. I think mm-hmm. you have to have it. Carmela has to have it to exist with these inconsistencies sure. in their marriage. Tony has to have it to, uh, you know, it's, it goes back almost in a way to the, to the Hawthorne quote. It's just sort of like, which yes. face are you wearing to yourself and to the masses? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more, be- we see in these moments, a lot more bewilderment because, you know, which one is true? Uh, is pussy a snitch or is he the hardened gangster? Uh, and, mm. He's both, and he has to reconcile that any way he can, and he's short-circuiting here. Yeah, I mean, each one of these characters, or, you know, these men in particular, they have their own version of their code that they follow, and as soon as they're in violation of whatever their own version of the code is, we start to see them, you know, unravel. Earlier in the season, when Tony thinks that he might go away for the whole Bevilacqua situation, we see that he's prepared to essentially do the right thing. I mean, he's making preparations he's going to put some money in the care of his lawyer he's he's going to go away he's going to do the time he's certainly not going to cooperate and give anybody up we see pussy not making those same choices he's moving towards the fucking dark side man yep no pussy is not that and that's really characters and drama and people in life are defined by the decisions they make when when things start to pressure them and for all of tony's flaws and boy does he have many uh, we've, we've mentioned again that as far as this lifestyle goes, turning his back on his friends and being a snitch is not something that Tony would do. But Pussy, he's not ready to take the years, as many guys are. And it's part of what 
gives Tony so much anxiety is there, you know, even a guy like Pussy, a trusted best friend under the pressures of the modern legal system and Rico and you get a guy 20 years on one drug charge because you can prove criminal conspiracy. It's hard for people to take that time. It was one thing back in the fifties and sixties, you just keep arresting somebody. You you'd get guys with rap sheets a mile long, petty theft, robbery, whatever. And they're back out two, three, four years. But the Rico laws are really crippled the mob in the nineties. That was what, um, brought it all down because you just charge them with one or two things, link them with other felons. And it's suddenly you can put them all away for 30, 40 years uh, on a, on a heroin pinch. And that's the situation pussy's in. It sucks. It sucks for him. Uh, I, I don't envy his spot. He, he made his own bed, mm. but um, yeah, you got to feel bad and you got to feel bad for the, uh, and as terrible as these mob guys are, you got to feel bad when somebody wanders in unwittingly like Chris with these Pokemon cards. Uh, <laughs> the real, the real hard edge stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just tonight. I got something hard edge, uh, but he's there to get Chris a car for Adriana. And uh, we see it's uh, just a, another little note. He's, he's, he's had his big moment this season and, and he's kind of, but, but it's nice to see Chris back in action. It's nice to see Chris. We saw oh, yeah. him. We saw him at Satrials at the very end of house arrest, but it's nice to see him at the brokerage uh, without those two douchebags there. It's probably a lot quieter. It's uh, uh, this bringing Chris back is nice, as you say. It's also really terrific writing. It's the perfect juxtaposition for where Big Pussy is. There's payoff here from the pilot as far back as that. Pussy was and is in some ways still, as we say, he's both things, was and is a mentor to Chris in terms of gangster life and murder and mayhem. But we're seeing Pussy like we've never seen him before and seeing Chris like we've never seen him before. Chris is now comfortable with this scam that he spent the whole first part of the season fidgeting about. He refers to hijacking a truck as old times, which mm. this was Big Pussy's bailiwick. And now as Christopher has, I guess, crystallized in this space, much more comfortable as a gangster, Pussy at total six and sixes and sevens with the life. Perfect. Perfectly done. Yeah. Mm. Well said, Paul. Then we get uh pussy bump and Cerro private eye, I suppose is the only way. Oh to my God. <laughs> Just the, the Chris, bumbling, stupid assholery of this whole thing. <laughs> he calls Skip at the dentist, mentions the mentions it and Skip tells him flat out, you're not to do anything like this get us info, but absolutely not. You're not going on a truck hijacking. Stop it. And um, Pussy does it anyway. He's out at five in the morning. He's outside that diner. I drive past that diner all the time. It's <laughs> 5.30 a.m. subjects inside, you know, whatever. He's just they fucking got this little tape recorder. I mean, first of all, he himself is not a conspicuous man. He is a very large, recognizable man. I'd recognize Vincent Pastore with, you know, blindfold on 100 feet away. Uh, he's, he's, not, he's a very recognizable guy. He says, he, what did he get? His kid's car, his son Jason's car or whatever. Uh, God. And uh, he ends up hitting a 7-Eleven clerk, Thal. He puts, <laughs> him, he puts him in a coma. Yeah, yeah. He fucking, I mean, he almost killed this guy, like, as many times as we've seen this episode, Lily still gasped when that when that happened because it's just it's just like boom, this guy gets fucking massacred. Uh, how stupid! How stupid! Uh, not that pussy is stupid, but he's in such a desperate, pitiful situation. Uh, I was just like, you fucking the whole time watching. I agree, Jordan. It's like you fucking idiot. What what are you doing? 
It's a particularly low moment for the character, you know, for for many reasons. One, working directly for Skip instead of trying to put himself at odds with the FBI, doing this fake bullshit detective routine, trying to bust particularly Christopher, who's a vulnerable member of the outfit and somebody that looks up to him over fucking Pokemon cards. It's not even over some gangster shit. It's over like the pettiest of petty crimes. Uh, hitting this guy in the process, having a spectacular auto wreck with his son's car. It's just, Pussy is such a piece of shit in this sequence. And it is actually like funny in its pitifulness. Yeah. We mentioned in our season one, episode two breakdown, our episode was Ricochet for the Sopranos episode 46 long, that the task of tracking down AJ's science teacher's car, stolen Saturn, was beneath him. Right. We, we talked about that at the time. Like that's a task that's beneath gangsters of Pauly and, and Pussy's caliber, but they're doing a favor for the boss. And yet it's still not even close to as pitiful as this display was, which is a fun bit of irony because he specifically referenced that moment to skip any faith I had, you know, any faith I had went out the window that very day. He's talking about tracking down this kid's his kid's science teacher's car. I can't even believe he brought that up because I think he was probably fine with it. He's decided he's, as Paul would say, he's told himself this story that he was actually really offended. I I think it was just something that was a nuisance at the time, but now he's decided that was the breaking point because he needs to have had a breaking point. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are both right. The, 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 that in some way, again, the talking oneself into this and, and how you work up to this space, it is also pitiful and very rough this season we have tracked, I think, from the beginning of the show, actually, what some of the collateral damages of these gangsters. It sometimes takes a bit of a funny form, like I think, say, the end of Bust Out, when Tony and AJ unwittingly tip over the little skiff <laughs> in the path of the Stugats, the boat. Here, it is not playful nor funny that he put this clerk in a coma. It is a good reiteration of how you're not the good guy. Like you put this dude in a coma and then I used my FBI contacts to get you out of it. Again, in an episode about denial, there's a lot of br- brutal truths told and emotional nakedness that follows. Well said. And then this storyline wraps up. It's definitely, you know, it's important, especially as relates to how the season's going to play out. But this is definitely the C plot of this episode because it ends way before the episode does in the scene in the hospital where... Skip basically tells him flat out, you're not an FBI employee cell. It's not going to happen. And this is a big snap to reality. He's laying there. He's busted up. He got him off the charge for leaving the scene. And um, this is kind of like the last gasp of Pussy Bump and Sarah as he was. I think this is when he really truly accepts the position he's in, not not fake accepts it and and tries to embrace it in a sad, pathetic way. But that resigned sigh when he sits back and, and is inconsolable and Skip can't get him to look at him or crack a smile. He actually like shakes his foot. That that to me is pussy truly realizing the shit sandwich he's eating and will continue to eat for the rest of his days. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Irina, we haven't seen her in a little bit. Tony, Irina, Carmela, this is a big thread and it weaves in and out of our main plot a lot. So I think at a certain point, we'll kind of hit the pause button, go back, talk about Tony Ritchie, and then all talk talk about the culmination as these, as these things collide. But let's talk about this. Tony is uh, in bed with Irina. They're in the midst of doing what they do and 
They light up. They have a little funny, some funny banter is going on here. Uh, chicken soup for the soul, tomato sauce for your ass. She loves her boots. <laughs> I think it's endearingly funny. Uh, not like I'm laughing at her, but I think it's uh, actually quite adorable that some of her lines are so muddled by her accent, they have to put subtitles on her English lines. I think that's actually yeah. kind of sweet. Uh, but what do we uh, what what do we make of this? Tony is trying to break it off. I don't think I realized until night in white satin that <laughs> that irena can act <laughs> that like this actress that plays irena is actually good yeah um and she they, is quite she, good and which is she is uh, she, which is interesting because i don't think she had any credits before this i think they found someone i think she was totally they wanted somebody with an authentic kind of un you know i don't know if they knew that she'd be around as long as she was or whatever but she she did a lovely job here yeah the actor's quite good and uh it also for me it like the episode really retroactively adds quite a lot of sympathy to Irina's character because you no longer see Irina as just an object in Tony's life. You see her as a person, you know, actually not just because um, of what she does in this episode, but we get a glimpse of her in a way that I, I guess it's because it's through Tony's eyes. He's really maybe seeing her as a person for the first time. And you get the idea that her life is actually quite sad and it would be perhaps even sadder without him. And, you know, for all her trying to relate to Tony in this episode, he is so emotionally damaged that he can't even really connect with all the parts of her that needs him. You know, yeah. I, I don't I certainly don't think he was prepared for something more than uh, an ongoing affair with this Gumar of his. Um, right. I don't think he was prepared to fully see her as a person, uh, not in the same way that he sees Dr. Melfi or Carmela, for example. And I know she gets rejected later on for being, quote, too old, but we'll talk about that. But let's not forget, she's like 24, 25, right. mid, mid, early 20s. Tony yeah. has had something that she hasn't had, which was a life <laughs> yeah. before meeting her. She, this is kind of like, I, I can't imagine being someone in her position. And you meet this guy and he's like really wealthy, doesn't demand too much of your time, buys you things and you know, what is her life? Uh, she, she has a, her cousin Svetlana first appearance, by the way, of uh, one-legged cousin Svetlana says that she had a hard life and she had a really rough upbringing. Uh, which, which uh, begins to elicit Tony's sympathy specifically when she refers to Tony getting, uh, excuse me, Irina getting stuck with her uncle who was a rude, miserable man. I wonder why Tony commiserates with that. <laughs> yeah, now, big time. My question actually throughout a lot of this episode was specifically why Tony broke it off. Yeah, that's that's a question I'm wrestling with too. Because in this episode, there are things offered, but they are either too complicated in some ways or too simplistic. The prompt for this breakup, or at least the first hint, actually comes in the first scene, beautiful first scene in this episode, when... The whole setup of that first scene is domestic tranquility, which will devolve yeah. into domestic strife, uh, starting with two of the best at it, Tony and Janice, just going at each other. And she actually, when he says that the reason I'm having this party for you is because you're my sister and I try to do what's right, she says, does right include planking that little Russian hottie on the side? So is Tony dealing with guilt feelings? Is he also dealing with this plain reality as he says to Irina and Melfi it's not good anymore it's not fun anymore and in this whole storyline Tony will I think enact as we've mentioned 
a real sympathy and having real feelings for Irina, feeling bad for her, and to some degree feeling responsible, which brings up, uh, again, what we've been dealing with from the first episode of the show, Tony feeling responsible for the women in his life, in particular, most importantly, his mother, who, importantly, he will not extend that sympathy to in this episode and is in complete denial about what she tried to do to him. And another very important complication that comes up in this episode, even though Tony's feelings about Irina are real, and even though he honestly feels bad for her, as Carmela points out, still, fuck you. Mm. Because the bandwidth that you give to her is a betrayal of me and your family. Yeah. So all this like comes together, and it, as Jordan pointed out, I think it's what accounts for how emotional this episode can be. The the complicated factors involved in how I feel for all these characters. It's hard seeing Carmela in the shape she's in in this episode. I mean, just the uh, she does such a good job, and she's trained to do this as a mob wife of putting on the face. And this is just one of the hours of The Sopranos, one of many, unfortunately, where the mask cracks a little bit and, and it just that we see the toll this takes on her, this lifestyle. And I'm not talking about necessarily the mob lifestyle, which I think Carmela wrestles with, but could take in stride. It's, it's, the, it's the emotional betrayal. Yeah. It's the fact that she gives her, her all to this family and to this man and beats herself up over this potential slip with Vic Musto. And Tony is just, you know, so in deep with this other woman that she's committing suicide. She's attempting suicide. Yeah. Brutal. We, 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 we can't forget that Carmela has a more um, palpable struggle with right and wrong than I think any other character on the show. But Tony's struggle, even though it's not as morally upright as Carmela's in terms of right and wrong, I mean... You know, we're we're at the end of the season here, the last, you know, two episodes in particular, tying up, you know, narrative loose ends. Tony's life, he's he's arrived at a stage where he sees Irina as something that's not sustainable to him. I mean, he phrases it as, well, it's just not fun anymore. But truthfully, it's it's now sucking more investment out of him than is worth for him to invest. You know, this is this has gone on too long. It's that's a great that's a great assessment. Yeah, it's it's too much for him. It's 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 um it's it's not what he needed from her. Uh it, it's now become like almost like a tax on him. So he has to get rid of it. He tries to shrug it off casually, and in so doing, he realizes this thing he's shrugging off is in fact not casual, right? This this ongoing thing that's been happening for a few years now this was not casual. This was not as casual as he thought. And Irina digs in in a way that I think even surprises us, the yeah. viewer. I think we were like, okay, yeah. And she's, you know, riding this guy for his money. And when he leaves, yeah, she'll be pissed off, but she'll get over it. Oh no, the stakes are a lot higher. And that's really smart writing, uh, you know, cause now we also have to care about this person. And that is why life is complicated. That's just, you know, people do not behave how you need them to behave. Yeah, she's beautiful. She's obviously young. Tony even brags many times over the series about how young she is, hot, young, Russian. But I really felt that sense of surprise watching this. It's like, it for the first time in the series, I really am like, oh, she is much younger than him. And she is in a much different emotional place. And she was taking this much more seriously than I think he realized. Uh, he says to her another sense of his loyalty and betrayal, fealty and shirking your duties. I'm not going to do this anymore. 
I'll take care of you until you get on your feet. So he's going to help her out financially, but the affair is done. But yes, of course, he feels this sense of uh, responsibility. So he's going to help her financially until you, quote, get on your feet. He walks out the door. She takes a figurine, throws it at the door, screams, I hate you, and rolls into a fetal position on the bed. Not a good sign. No. Right. So we kind of <laughs> get that we're all good. This isn't going to this is not going to go well. So he asks Melfi for a recommendation for a shrink for her. And little note, I think we're going to have a much longer Melfi conversation in our next episode. But I, I do just want to note that uh, in, a se- in a season where every episode, it seems we've been talking about how this therapy feels like it's floundering and Melfi's kind of spinning out of control. It seems like uh, her come to Jesus meeting with Elliot last week took. It seems we, we see a much sharper, much more focused Melfi here. And I just think that's worth noting that Melfi seems yeah. like she's 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 righted the ship to some extent to what her end arc we'll, is, to what end we'll see. But yeah, her, her arc is subtle, but she's definitely uh, she seems sober. She seems adept. She seems a, a little bit back to her old self, even if she's not um, even if she's not able to bring him to any particular conclusion just yet. Uh, I think it's it's she's she's getting back to herself for sure. Absolutely. Right. She's getting back. This is something we all clearly noted. She's back on her game or getting back on her game. She's sharp. She's interrogative. She is not judgmental. She even has to reiterate for Tony's benefit that she's not judgmental. Tony wants her to render judgment as a therapist, as an ethical person, as a straight person. I don't know, on his having an affair, his having an affair for a with a younger woman, the age difference. Not her job, not even close to her job. So as she moves back into a space where she's more on the ball, what we come back to is a major issue that clouds this therapy, Tony's denial system. That's what we're coming back to. Yep. There's a lot of dark humor, too. Uh, Obviously, it's The Sopranos. There's going to be a certain degree of that. There's a couple moments that made me laugh throughout this storyline, one of which was they had to have that line where I think it was Adriana or one of the women compliment her new wallpaper. And, Oh, you got to give me that guy's number. Like right when she's miserable at this party uh, with all of this going on, doesn't want to talk is obviously upset. And and just to be reminded of Vic Musto at this particular moment has to eat at her. And I found that very funny. I also like the exchange between Tony and Melfi where uh, he's like, well, I was banging her for two years. And she says, was that a hardship on her? (laughs) Yeah. Terrific line. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They're they're enjoying the repartee much more, Mm -hmm. I guess, now that she's kind of back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I noticed, speaking of Melfi, there's a line he says in the Melfi scene that he also says to Irina. Uh, I can't help but notice that it's twice the exact same line to women in his life while he is also behaving hypocritically, by the way. But he, he says, what's wrong with you to Irina and the Melfi? When, when, when Irina gives him the rundown of, uh, or when he gives the rundown, like, you know, don't you want somebody who can give you what you want? A family, a life, you know, that kind of stuff. And he's just like, is so put off by the fact that she's not thinking like that, that he says, what's wrong with you? And Salsa says it to Melfi when Melfi doesn't judge him. So he's the one keeping Arena from moving on with her life. And, you know, so I think there's a lot of, I just think he's projecting there. There's a lot of reflection in this episode, uh, but like a kind of twisted bizarro reflection. They're they're, they're projecting stuff out at other people. Um, 
that's going to be manifested physically in a nice way by Alan Coulter when he shoots almost the entire Janice and Carmela seen through a mirror. Uh, no mm. accident there, just kind of just people not seeing what they should be seeing. Uh, but you know, just a, just a fun little thing I noticed there. I that's, just a, to... that's a great point, Chris. I think a lot of this episode brings an import to, I guess, not just how we perceive ourselves, but how others perceive us. Yeah. Whenever Richie leaves Junior's house, Junior and Bobby will often spend a moment reflecting on who he is and what image he gives off. Very important uh, yeah. factors in all the storylines, I think. Very, very true. Yeah. So I think I think in Tony's mind, there's um, there seems to be just one way a woman should act. And when they act in any other way other than that, he has to call them out for it. But in his mind, it's so funny because as as sort of liberally as Tony lives his life and indulges in all of his appetites, he kind of sees all the women in his life that they sort of need to be these perfect beings to be worshipped and also to judge him in some way and to live a life that is kind of pre-programmed into sort of this very specific formula. And he's it has those same standards for Carmela, for Melfi, for Irina. Just they all have to kind of fit this mold of what a woman is and does in his life. And the ones that really are at odds with that are the ones that he gets into these extreme conflicts with. This is where we get a lot of cross lines with Janice, Janice who's who's a very sort of masculine, masculinized woman, uh, where we really get into conflicts with, of course, Tony's mother. Good God. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, anytime any one of these others steps out of line, it's like, what, what are you doing? This is not how women behave. This is not how you're supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, Jordan. This continues. And. She attempts suicide, ends up in the hospital, takes a bunch of pills, I believe, with, with alcohol. She won't see the shrink at the hospital because he's a Romanian and they have a beef that goes back centuries. And then, of course, later on, the mention of the shrink sends Svetlana into a little rant about Russians and shrinks and gulag and political rehabilitation. Even Tony has to say, this is too fucked up for me. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, but she's not having luck in the, the cruel, awful, sick. It's hopefully gotten a little better since then, but probably not much world of modeling uh, where, you know, she's 24 and too old to be a hand model for salad spinners. Jesus Christ. <laughs> What's sad is I buy that. That's an app. That's credible. They, they, they fucking would do that. I hate that industry. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's another story. And uh, yeah, then this trickles into the home in a very uncomfortable way. As Paul mentioned, and we're going to talk about more in kind of our A plot, there are so many, in fact, I would say a majority of scenes very well constructed by Green and Burgess here that start with a kind of simple domestic premise, a brother and sister moving into an empty house, a, a, a wife and her friend getting ready to go to a, the gym, and they just, or a couple sitting down to dinner and the scenes just explode into something cacophonous and crazy. Uh, but she calls, has a very funny argument with the maid. <laughs> just very well-written, funny dialogue. Another beef believe, going way back. Yes, yeah. I believe he call, she calls her, what is it, a, a, a bearded Polak hag, I think. Yeah. Is what she says. <laughs> that is the quote, yes. Uh, put him on the phone, you bearded Polak hag. Is, is, That's is. it. <laughs> very to funny. To talk to Tony. Um, and she's just like, get out of here. You, you know, Tony gets on the phone, hears her out and says, uh, don't call here again. You know, hangs, they have the wrong number and turns around and Carmela is like right there, heard the whole thing, not a dummy. And they have this 
beautiful scene and i say beautifully i mean beautifully acted not beautiful in what happens it's really upsetting but <laughs> yeah. uh this is one of those complicated things um i don't want to necessarily say i feel bad for tony but he 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 has totally lost her trust at this point. I mean, he's not entirely lying. He, he does tell her, all right, I saw her, but it was, she tried to kill herself and she rightfully snaps back. You're putting me in a position where I'm feeling sorry for a whore who fucks you. And what's worse for a second, I believed you. Ooh, oh, brutal tag on that line, right? Yeah. 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 This is the emotional nakedness that is so brutal. And I think it, it, it's why, as Jordan pointed out, that this can be a, this is a tough episode at times, made me emotional. This was one of those scenes. Yeah. And Carmela, in this moment, putting that to Tony, uh, to me, reflects a lot of the emotional leverage that kind of makes up this storyline, as well as the emotional awkwardness. A beat that comes before this, I think, is um, at at the party, yeah. the engagement party, which mostly feeds into the A storyline. But there's a wonderful, to me, vintage Sopranos moment when in the midst of the speeches uh, that everybody starts to cry and cheer over, Carmela excuses herself and has to cry. Yeah. What's so real is Carmela's emotional pain because once again, she's not stupid and she can smell what CK1 smells like. Yeah. But the fact that she is so moved to tears by these completely idiotic schlock speeches <laughs> is so Sopranos to me. Yeah. But yet you buy it because you know where she's at. Yeah. Um, but as you say, in some way feeling for Tony, though there are these betrayals, it is, for example, ironic that she smells the perfume on the shirt from the time when Tony broke it off. Yeah. But so it's still lingering. Of course, there's of course, there's not trust. Earlier this season, he says to her, oh, it's it's over months ago in the middle of their fight, I think it's in um, From Where to Eternity, that argument happens, and he's lying. And this time he says it, it's the one time it's true. It's like the broken clock thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he happens, it's it's a great, uh, talking about like vintage soprano ideas, Paul, it's like telling the truth this one time, of course he's not believed. Yeah, right. You know, which just makes it, just twists up the, the, the gut wrench a little bit. Actually, there's two Carmela moments I want to talk about, and then I want to pause this and get into the A story because I think they all kind of culminate. But she has, first of all, a scene with Vic Musto, a very well done transition. I want to talk about this transition where Richie is pitching Alley Boy about betraying Tony, and he says, no, we'll talk about that scene in more depth in a second. But you get this, it sounds like you, you have to think machine gun fire right into the, the paint scene, mixer. The, yeah. The paint right. mixer. So yeah. well done. Uh, I love that. Again, it, it's sort of, it's suggestive of the idea that redecorating your house is as commonplace in this, is more out of place in this world than machine gun fire. It's it's sort of the domestic and the gangster colliding in a fun visual and audio metaphor there Who oh for sure this episode this was uh alan coulter of course so genius course. Yeah, excellent excellent yeah. transition yeah uh i think he also says in the dvd commentary on this scene that he deliberately staged them profile to each other which is not something tv shows do very often to kind of suggest their uncertainty with each other and their uncomfortable just uh, the shift in their relationship very well. So every little detail is thought out by these people. It's beautiful, but this is a nice scene where she kind of tells him she, she puts a button in their little story 
like, you know, um, thank you. She, she thanks him for not coming that day for making, for being strong for the both of us. And we know that he was just like, he realized who the fuck he was dealing with. And that's why he didn't show up. Yeah. Though she seems to be kind of seeding this. Like, I, I feel like she has this encounter, obviously not to have sex with this man right in this moment, but almost as like a, I mean, she says it, she says it in the scene. I, I may be free someday. This is almost like a, Hey, keep me in mind in the future. Yeah. You know, don't, don't forget about me, you know? Yep. So interesting there. And then we get, uh, you know, she leaves and he says, <laughs> Do you know who her husband is to his uh, Ramon, his guy, Ramon? So that's just funny little button there. Yeah, maybe nobody's free. Not no. really. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, nobody's ever free from this, certainly. But yeah, so then they have this exchange. I, the reason I brought that up now is because they have this exchange at the end of the scene where she argues with Tony between uh, Gabriella Dante, where they're like, she's like, all men are like, they're all like this Carm. And she says, no, that man, that wallpaper man, that was a male person you can respect. And she kind of drops the bomb on Carmel. It's like, Carm, he didn't show up that day because of who your husband is. He wasn't making some brave moral stance. He was actually being a coward. And that's just more than Carmela wants to hear at this moment and doesn't go to the gym and runs upstairs. Yep. Anything else on this arena, Tony, Carmela situation before we move on to the main event here. We're going to come back to the final moments of this story in our next bit, but anything else we want to say about this? I'd only mention that I think what's happening there, crude and in some way cruel as what Gab is saying to Carmela is, and as much as it might also reflect what compromises she has made in her life yeah. as a mob wife, it's another instance in which someone is trying to talk someone else out of their denial system to see plainly their life and their reality. And of course, Carmela pushes it away at that moment. Yeah. But we will come back to it. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to mention that I, I thought how interesting the scene plays in particular when, you know, when Irina calls the house, because it's, it would be so much nicer for Carmela and Tony if that were a private scene, but they are far from alone. Gabriella Dante is part of that scene, as is, you know, their their Polish maid. So, I mean, this is, they're, they're very much sort of in their, they're on stage, I mean, essentially. And, and I guess they're comfortable enough having this conversation in front of others, or just that they're forced to, and the embarrassment that goes along with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, guys. I'm excited to get into this, you know. This is, uh, whew. This has been building for a while since Toodle Fucking Ooh, Richie got out and um, we are here. Let's take it back to the top of the episode real quick where we open up on Casa April. Uh, what, an I, what an opening. Yeah, it is a great opening. First of all, it feels very dreamlike and ethereal. Yes. You're just kind of like seeing this dancing couple. It feels out of place. And we'll come to find out that the character Rick Ricky is very much out of place because, you know, as son to Richie, we find out Richie had a son. We don't know much about him because it's seems like he's not a son Richie wants to spend very much time with <laughs> but uh yeah and I guess Alan Coulter deliberately directed wanted Tony to come in ass first that's the first thing he wanted to see uh, <laughs> uh as far as movement um of the scene was Tony coming into the the room ass first carrying the settee and then of course exits the scene in an odd reversal by telling Janice to shove the settee up her ass that's <laughs> that's just kind of a fun little circle there, there but yeah so this this begins our pattern here odd little domestic scene kind of something normal hey these floors have wonderful glide ricky says uh and we find out that he's a competitive dancer 
Richie's son. We also then get a contrast, a new character that we've not met yet, but seems to be dropping in here much different than Richard. Uh, Ricky, rather, is Jackie Jr. Yeah. Uh, this is Jackie April's kid. How's your rich? Bumming around, smoking cigars in an empty house, watching the game in the other room with a bunch of losers. And uh, <laughs> Tony seems upset that uh, he's not, uh, he's dropped out of college or not taking his academics very seriously. Jackie April is a man of knowledge. But anyway, they've dropped in this character on us. Uh, for what end, we don't, we're not 100% sure yet, but Tony's insight, though cruel and dismissive, seems correct. Oh, yeah, hanging out with Jackie Jr. is easier than dealing with his own son. Janice says, don't do that. He's yeah. right. As yeah. it turns out, uh, Rich, being a fucking toolbox, is ashamed of his, uh, I guess, his son is gay or at the very least effeminate. He, he takes part in ballroom dance fine mm. and would rather hang out with Jackie Jr. Tony's denial system seems right up front. Jackie April was a man who loved knowledge. Uh, Jackie April, from what we saw, was a man who loved tits and then died of cancer. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a nice idea. I'm sure Jackie April wanted his son to do better than him. Yeah. Fine. But everybody's denial system is at full tilt here. And when it gets when all of these denials and these barriers are broken, it's going to get ugly as it happens starting right in this scene. The emotional nakedness again starts to spring up. And you say things, you can't take them back. In the next beat, in the ominous rainy day meeting scene, Tony's threats to Richie become more direct. So from the beginning, from first beat, this is heating up. Yeah. Tony and Janice really know how to make it stick to each other, though. They just cut right to the quick. When it happens, it escalates so fast. Tony tells her uh, AJ can't go to see the, what is it, monster truck show uh, with Richie. He doesn't want Richie around his kids. Can't say I necessarily blame him. <laughs> I don't know what Richie April has to offer a kid, especially yeah. seeing how he treats his own. <laughs> sure. So, you know, I get it. But of course, that offends Janice. You can't stand to see me happy, can you? You motherfucker. Tells her be codependent to a fucking shitbag. Oof, just back and forth here. This is this, they're just going for it. Stick that set tea up your ass. Also, just two characters who are very similar in yeah. that scene. Uh, the way they handle each other, the way they use language. Uh, I was even going to, I'm going to comment on their physicality in the scene. I was like, you could watch this on mute and you would say, yeah, this is a brother and sister fighting. These two are, <laughs> are absolutely related and they know what gets each other. But also uh, to Tony's credit, he says not a thing that is false in there. It's very mean, but everything is true. Yeah. Yep. 100%. Paul mentioned it. The next scene in this story is this, meeting they're arguing over garbage bids i'm not entirely sure how this all works but basically they're fighting over certain areas and routes richie feels like he's entitled to the fairfield bid ali boy ali is uh for those of you who don't know who ali is ali barisi is larry barisi is one of the five captains of the family he was arrested in season one at the same time junior was so he's kind of still in the can a little bit it's not his he's he's of questionable legal status at the moment so ali his brother Albert is running his crew while he's locked up. So he's there at this meeting, Dick Barone, who we met in house arrest. The point of the scene, essentially, uh, as Richie lays out to Jackie Jr. as kind of a mob lesson, told you to shut the fuck up. And he told me to go fuck myself. 
Basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's not wrong. Uh, Tony just cuts Richie's nuts off publicly uh, right here once again. Uh, pissed off that he's still selling coke on the roots. We talked last time about how he's still defying Tony for no reason other than just he's had enough of doing what Tony says. He doesn't respect Tony. And that's it. So this is this is where this is at. This is open hostility. Jackie Jr. is kind of we're meant to not like him very quickly. I think he's glomming on to Richie. He's a young whippersnapper. I love the way Jr. completely owns him later on in the episode. We'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, anything to say about this and about our next scene, which sees a uh, junior getting the costs, some legal costs from uh, Melvoy and his attorney. They want to deconstruct the wiretaps uh, and it's going to cost 400 grand to get these experts on. Oof, I can't imagine. There's not much more to say except that what you pointed out, uh, I absolutely uh, well said with regard to that meeting, stripping away any of the pretense including there's not much that is indirect about saying next time you'll find yourself in the back of one of your trucks. Yes. That's a direct threat. And Richie reacts accordingly with uh, a face that suggests uh, almost disbelief. The the one complicates the other, though. Very funny lines from Junior in this scene. Uh, Chris, uh, ballpark figure? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wrigley fucking field. For Christ's sake. Uh, I'm hemorrhaging (laughs) spongeulics. It's so funny to me. So good. So funny. But junior, the one complicates the other. This is why t- this is why Junior is in a position to entertain once again seriously killing his nephew. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think the only thing I would bring up, which is very on the nose, and it's been on the nose since pilot, is that you know Tony's business, or at least the legitimate face of his very illegitimate business, is is sanitation. And Richie's presence in the family kind of seeks to corrupt the only legitimate part of Tony's entire empire. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, Tony, That's a great keep, point. Tony keeps telling him, like, you, you don't want to fuck with the garbage stuff because that's that's really what we do. And Richie's insistence that I'm going to sell coke and just do this anyway is just it just points to Richie as just this tumor that is just growing on the family that really cannot be uh, abided. And, uh, you know, any little bit of sympathy that we might have might have had engendered for us for Richie, you know, with the jacket and all that shit, it, it's really gone for me. Just the fact that he's still doing this, he's still fucking this up, he's still mucking up the family's only legitimate face. And also, just on the symbolic level, sanitation is an important industry, right? It's a vital, completely necessary component of any community, just mm. as to some extent the mob is a necessary element or some degree of organized crime is essential in any community. But Richie is corrupting both those things. He's corrupting sanitation practice, lest we forget where he dumped some garbage not so very long ago. Yeah. Uh, but he's also corrupting the function of organized crime in Tony's world. Someone's got to go at this point. It's Richie or Tony. It's the old West thing. It's these two forces, the irresistible force and the immovable object, except one of them is not quite so irresistible as we'll get to in a moment. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) this, uh, I think it's a very good point that Richie as a tumor, as a cancerous growth, you got to stop it. You have to cut it out. And I guess like a cancer or something that is uncontrollable in some way, Richie's reactions to things are often outsized and disproportionate. When Albert eventually will say no, hands down, they 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 figure they're going to kill Larry mm. because they didn't get the permission format that they needed to take this one move. So now they're going to kill the person that said no. Yeah. It's like this is not this is, this is not how 
anyone should operate, particularly in a business in which you must be cautious. Yep. It was important to see Junior having money troubles because Richie's also now having money troubles. So the two of them kind of commiserate. Let's ask a question. Junior is seriously considering this, right? He's waiting to see if Richie can actually sell it to Alley Boy, right? I think so, yes. I think yeah. it's another way in which Because Junior later tells Tony, I was, I was playing him. Uh, is that just another attempt to salvage his dignity after his humiliation being played in season one? Or does he? <laughs> yeah, the story works yeah. better that way. Yeah. But Junior both loves Tony and considered murdering him. That's yeah. how complex these characters are on the right. show. That's yeah. how complex loyalty and betrayal are on this show. So hypothetical then, Richie goes to Alley Boy and gets Alley, as they, they say it, not me, the biggest crew in the fucking family. Uh, we get a sense also that there's a lot of other factions of the mob family that we're just not privy to because we only have an hour each week. But supposedly this is the biggest crew in the family, so they want to get him on board to have most of the people behind him. Let's say Richie comes back and says, yeah, Alley Boy is in. We think Junior absolutely would have taken another shot with Richie here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, sure. no doubt yeah. No doubt in my mind, yeah. Junior's not gambling foolishly. If he thinks he can do this, he'll do it. I mean, mm. Paul's right. It's a complicated relationship. He yeah. loves him, but he would also be okay if he was dead. I, I, I really believe that. I think Junior, more than anything, is interested in two things, his survival and his dignity, and Tony comes third. That's just how it is. Mm. Mm. I like that. Well said. If we're looking at it structurally, the scene where... Uh, Richie tries to make the case to Albert is really fun for a number of reasons. He refers to Larry, uh, Albert's brother, as the king of dermabrasion. <laughs> uh, you imagine that? You get a facelift <laughs> one week later, you're in jail. Um, so, which then I think Albert repeats. I mean, God, these are yeah, funny but... bits. But the scene that comes right before that, it cuts right from the scene at the FBI with uh, Kubitoso and Skip Lapare talking to Richie trying to make this case that they're gonna move against Tony Soprano. And Kubitoso in that scene with Skip is trying to bring Skip back to the practical reality of their business. This can work two ways. You can find yourself getting too close and we're working on a case here. This is an investment. Mm. And for very practical reasons, Albert says, no, this isn't a good idea. And Richie couldn't sell it. Mm -hmm. That's the salient factor. It's so important that Junior of all people comes to the very practical point of realizing that he cannot rely on Richie in this practical business. So and Richie what a cannot be about scene. That Abs scene, that scene when Richie, like they, like Richie and Junior have a couple of great scenes, but my favorite Junior scene, maybe, and he had a great episode last time we talked about this in House Arrest. Uh, yeah, I think he was actually nominated for an Emmy because of it. But she, when Richie leaves and we see Junior working this out in front of Bobby, that's one of my favorite Junior moments in the whole show. Just him yeah. weighing his options. Uh, couldn't sell it, fucking loser. And then there's Tony. He's wrapped up in that fucking head of his. Just so good. I like Bobby. I'm in awe of him. <laughs> yeah. Again, more Shakespeare from Junior. He tells Richie we need to stick our courage to the post. Anyone drops a Shakespeare line in this show, it's Junior. I love the way they write this sure. guy. Sure. Yeah, I think, I think while we're on the subject of Junior and Shakespeare, I, I often equate Junior to Lear as kind of like this uh, old king that has perhaps outlived his usefulness. But uh, and with Bacala as his fool, like now that he's <laughs> removed from rule and the younger folks are running the family, he sees things more clearly. And again, because he's a, he values survival and dignity, he's able to parse out like, no, I'm, I'm better off with Tony. That moment of realization does happen for him. And it's it is cool for us to watch. 
we yeah. do share Bacala's awe. I second you, Chris. Absolutely. Yeah. It's also the principal payoff, I think, in a specific aspect of Richie's character and his journey, because as fun as he is to watch and thrilling and sometimes scary and brilliant as David Proval is, oftentimes during this season, I have wondered, like, what is it with this guy and why is he not thinking these things through? But Junior, very importantly as a character, I think because of the past that they shared, had a blind spot when it came to Richie. And now that it's gone, Richie's done. Mm -hmm. This war is effectively over, by the way. Though Richie ends up dying in a different way, anticlimactically, Richie is such a fucking loser, as Junior points out, that he is functionally dead before Janice kills him. There's no way out. He could maybe survive a hit attempt, but even if he did, he would still have no meaningful allies. Yeah. Done. Over. And I think Richie knows it. I think Richie knows he's a loser after this decision doesn't go his way. I don't know. I think the rest of the episode, he's just kind of, yeah, I don't know. I think there's there's something very impotent about the way he throws that beer in that scene when Janice tells him he doesn't want you around his kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of, he's kind of infantilized after that. I mean, he goes back to her mother's house. He's they're using her kitchen. I mean, (laughs) he's just, you finally see the small man be small. Finally. Very well said. I want to get there. We're almost there, but let's quickly mention, I want to touch down on a couple quick little uh, fun things that I noticed. I loved when Tony pulls Meadow away from Richie. Richie's talking to uh, Meadow and Jackie and Tony's just like, Meadow, go help your mother. Uh, Getting her away from Richie at the, at the engagement party. Uh, We find out at the engagement party that Livia is on Prozac, which Tony is kind of floored by uh just the idea of Livion Prozac must throw him for a loop very clearly he has to go to Carmela at that point and and shit on it you know she's just too senile to remember who she hates great line yeah very great and uh yeah Richie and Janice are soulmates I want to mention this awesome scene with Janice and Carmela trying on the dress Janice looking at her cleavage in the mirror it, she tells her about the gun Carmela's go like right in the middle of all this shit with Tony tells her about the Gumar. And then the next kind of scene between them is Richie saying, Hey, lay off the spending. And they're watching boxing. He's watching a boxing match and, and, and he throws the beer. We get Livia on that fucking intercom, but let's talk about Livia in the first part of this, that, that, you know, leading up to the end here, she's on Prozac. She's, now, I got this funny bit through the intercom. We're going to see a lot more of her in the last scenes. Well, uh, there's the the great scene in the dress shop. Uh, yeah. If you want to just pause yeah, there for a second. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, it's, it's. But I, I really just like the way it's shot. We get this shot of Janice in the mirror, Janice trying to sort of imagine herself as the bride. For a lot of Richie and Janice's storyline this season, it's a lot of trying to recapture your youth. But as we all learned from the great Gatsby, you can never live the past again. Uh, you know, you, you you can't go back to that. So this conversation between Carmela and Janice and, you know, Carmela trying to take Janice back in memory, back to her own wedding day, I, I think it it comes across as very sentimental for us because we know what kind of situation Carmela is in. But it feels so hollow to me just, you know, hearing those words and watching Janice trying to envision herself as this thing that she is not. She is not a bride wearing white. 
you know, this is this will not be a white wedding, no matter how they try to dress it up. You know, that yes. hollow house that we see in the beginning of this episode, that's as close as we're going to get. I was reminded of the El Dorado episode from Boardwalk Empire. I was like, yep, we can look inside this beautiful place and here's a little glimpse of it. And this is the best it's going to get. Mm. Uh, the yeah. scene in the dress shop also, of course, has the, as Jordan eloquently formatted there the white wedding dress and i think the hope that it reflects the title of the episode is a reference to that the knight and the white satin armor and being saved by marriage um though it's a malapropism from irena and a lot of this episode is about partnerships marriages unions alliances that people look at in a sentimental format but reality steps into the denial and starts to either fray at it or obliterate it altogether and you're left with the ruins. That's why I think this episode, in spite of being dramatic, thrilling, fun, and having funny moments, as Jordan pointed out, is also very emotional at times Yeah, because denial, drama is denial, as well as pulling it apart, um, this emotionally difficult place that Carmela, especially in the dress shop scene, is in. All said, boys. Moving along here, we have... Junior meeting up with Tony, warning him. I really like this scene. Junior for, you know, yes, he's not as calculated as he's projecting himself to be, but he makes the right choice and he plays the scene well too. You know, I love when he tells Tony, say, well, you want my little nephew, but if I didn't come to you, your wife would be a widow and your kids wouldn't have no father. So go fuck yourself. <laughs> uh, but he basically warns Tony, Richie's making a move against you. Tony practically doesn't buy it at first, uh, which is evident in the way he's been talking to Richie for the past eight, nine episodes, just shitting on him every chance he gets. But he lays it home. Junior picks a side. And it's this is a much different result than we saw last season at this same point, huh? But great scene here. And as um, it happens, I think actually, Chris, both of us have the script for yeah. Night in White Satin Armor. It's in a Soprano script book. In this scene, in the actual script, Junior says the line, Richie April is moving against you. Tony's response in the text is, I didn't know if he had the balls. Terrific rewrite. Mm. In the show, Junior says, Richie April is moving against you. Tony waves it off. He doesn't have the balls. Denial, mm. which Junior then yeah. has to penetrate. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well said. Consequently, Tony brings Junior in for the hug and, uh, Hey, he fixed, uh, I mean, sure, this is going to ameliorate at least some of his money issues. Tony bumps up his percentage another point and a half from their arrangement post-season one. So he's not- Is that uh, good? Well, it's Do we better. think that's a lot of money? I don't know. Um, I don't know how much, it's uh, hard to say exactly. It's certainly better than nothing. And it's probably, mm. and as Junior weighed out, it's probably better than whatever future he had waiting for him with Richie at the helm. That's for sure. It did seem a little stingy to me. I think we end up, he goes from what, 5% to 7.5% or something like that. And I was just yeah. like, oh, maybe that's, maybe I'm just dumb about business and that's actually a lot more than I think. But I was like, oh, he's got a $400,000 thing to pay off. I, well, I don't know it, if that's enough. Yeah, I don't know. It all depends on how much they're bringing in. 7.5% uh, of $10 million is. You know, oh, well, sure. But but if it's yeah, yeah, but it all it all kind of depends on who's earning what. And, you know, I don't know. They don't make it clear exactly how much the family brings in. Yeah, um, I know. But, I know it's a minor point. I just remember from the end of last season, you know, being like, all right. So Junior's at subsistence level. What is two per 
you know, percent more than subsistence level really mean. Anyway, Junior yeah. seems happy about it. So I guess we should just take it off his reaction. Happier. I probably would have given him 10 or 15. That to me, like you, you reward loyalty, but you know, Tony's also a greedy pig and <laughs> he's going to take what he wants and he still has to let Junior know who's in charge here. So, and Junior gets it. Junior's not in any position to make a, a big move against Tony right now. And he knows it. Tony knows it. So this is where things are going. And he gives Syl the order. Sill takes two steps forward, two steps back. I don't think there's anything to gain by keeping him around. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, Sill. Goodbye. And yeah. Tony, Tony says, get it done. And then the order is signed. And then we get the scene. And this is, of yep. course, you know, the like we talked about, the episode is so much wonderful emotional highs and lows and beautiful depth on a lot of different areas. But this is the scene I think everybody remembers from this episode. Is, of course, legendary. It's just, it's just a jaw. It's it's a jaw. It's a classic jaw dropper. It's a great Robin Green Mitchell Burgess dinner scene. <laughs> it's <laughs> certainly a little is. family strife over dinner. Yeah, yeah. We talk at length about their hilarious dinner scenes, and let's add this one to the pile. It's so good. She, uh, you know, <laughs> we were getting these little warning signs about Janice. Junior tells him that that story a few weeks, uh, you know, you want to know who's not a good kid. Uh, and he, he kind of warns Richie. Junior says to Tony, you got to wonder where she is and all this. My little niece, everyone's suspicious of Janice. We've been getting these warning signs of Janice. Uh, and in the show of hardened gangsters and uh, corrupt and inept FBI, we have uh, the villain of this season, for all intents and purposes, being offed by Janice. Uh, it's just subvert your expectations. The scene builds beautifully. They're getting ready for dinner. They're talking about Rick, Richard. You know, a lot of funny lines to start it off here. He'd never miss an opportunity to fucking tango and foxtrot in front of everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jackie, how come I couldn't have a son like that? And, uh, you know, another, I want to point out a Soprano's hypocrisy here, and then I want to turn it over to you guys. He told Christopher in the first episode we meet him, toodle fucking ooh, you want to hit her, you want to, you want to raise your hands to her, give her your last name until then keep your hands to yourself. And then he goes and hits somebody whose last name is still Soprano. Unbelievable. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Not so, smart. So, so there's your old school ethics right out the fucking window. Yep. She's a Soprano to the last drop. Yep. And yeah, then it happens. Uh, first of all, the acting by David Proval here, uh, he is just ice cold after punching her. Sits down, starts eating, moves, sits on the Jersey Bride magazine, starts putting shovel and pasta in his mouth. What are you looking at? You gonna cry now? <sighs> Just yeah, okay. Uh, not that there was, not that I think there was any salvaging it after the hit anyway, but that's certainly not a way to do it. She shows up with the gun. I'm in no mood for you. Bang! Out. On it's, a, it's a gun, Janice. I thought you were a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah let's talk about the scene boys what do we make of this this amazing twist and its aftermath hmm. all right well uh, a couple of thoughts i had not necessarily in order it's yeah. so much to take in the first is that they are both in this sort of diminished position he's certainly had the air taken out of his tires from the decision going against him not just from the garbage contract but not being able to successfully convince the family that tony needs to be taken out and now he's kind of riding on the other side of, I don't know, the any any long-term plans he's had have been scotched at this point. Janice is kind of needling him about who in his mind is a disappointing son who has recently hit him up for five grand to go to Europe. He's perturbed. He's, he's bothered. Janice has brought up previously now uh, that Tony doesn't want him around the kids. You know, he's, he's 
like Junior, he's a man of dignity as well. He's someone who feels he's owed this great respect, and, yeah. and he feels certainly disrespected in this scene. He needs to reassert his power. He does this by punching Janice in the face, not yeah. slapping her, not that that would be any better, but he punches her in the face. Yep. And I, I, I see the shock on Janice's face, which is it's so well acted. And yeah. then there are, you, you see the wheels in her head turning. And one of those wheels I thought, and maybe I'm just reading into Aida Totoro's performance a little bit here, not the first time she's been hit, I don't no, think. No, no way. Very, very perceptive. I got that too. Yeah. Not the first time she's been hit, but it will be the last. Mm. Amen to that. This is uh, the Sopranos at the apex of anticlimactic genius. This is not an expected way for this storyline to wrap up. So how is it so credible? How does it work so well? Yeah, I think it works so well for a couple of reasons. One is that it does wrap up Richie nicely because it's, a, it's effectively the way that he came into the show. Uh, stupid, poorly thought through violence without any thought to the consequences, particularly if you're a sociopath and you think other people's interior lives are, I don't know, a rumor. So yeah, he punches Janice in the face, doesn't think of it, doesn't even believe that she's going to do anything with the gun. And it's also weirdly a nice way, at least for the moment, to wrap up Janice's storyline because it's so beautifully and strangely and darkly and hilariously gives the lie to all of her peacenik chit-chat. Yeah. I'm reminded of David Mamet's uh, explanation of dramatic climax, which is that it's something that is both that should be surprising, but inevitable. And I think this passes that test. It's mm -hmm. simultaneously surprising, but once it happens, it makes the most sense possible. It's like, oh, of course, this is where this is all going. Even though the first time anybody I know has sure. ever seen this, it's a, <gasps> and it's crazy because Tony, yeah. what, what the Sopranos does is they didn't even have to get to the point where Tony orders the hit. If they wanted to surprise, another show might not have even shown that. But we know that the hit's been ordered. We know Richie's dead or so, Rich, something is happening. A status quo shift is happening before this episode is over. And then the next scene, fucking Janice kills him. <sighs> so, yeah. Good. Uh, I think this scene also plays really well because in the in the long form, these were both people who were masquerading as someone else, right? We have Janice with all of her hippiness and living on an ashram and all this stuff. You know, the, the Parvati mask has completely slipped by now. When she pulls out the gun and blows him away, we think, there she is. She's finally, yeah. she's finally emerged. And similarly, <laughs> Richie has kind of, conned at least Janice into believing that he is not the same rough guy that he used to be in the old days, that he yeah. has found some modicum of enlightenment in prison. Uh, he's even got her at least half believing this story that Beansy Gata was actually a guy who was perhaps deserving oh of God. what he got. Yeah. But she's lucky he didn't get crushed by the car too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know what? He's uh he's a liar too. And in the moment where he says, you know, put my dinner on the table, hits yeah. her in the face. That's who he really is. So they yeah. they both finally show themselves, and this is what those two people would actually do to, to each other. This is the first honest moment between them. It just it also happens to be their last moment together. Oof, so good. Ah, I'm getting chills. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so then the next series of events unfold rather rapidly, as does happen with things like this. Uh, we get the call from Tony. Carmela drops a brutal line when that phone rings. We get a very well acted. Phone call, Janice is hysterical, can barely get words out. She's hyperventilating. And uh, Tony hangs up, 
gets ready to go over there. But before he answers the phone, Carmela says, you better get that. Maybe she slit the other wrist. Oof. God. You can just <laughs> it's see. It's so t- funny, though. It is. Oh, it's a very it's a hilarious. And you can, what's even more funny is you see Tony, like, a moment's like, yeah, I'm going to have to just swallow that one, aren't I? Yep. Going to have to <laughs> yeah. take these hits for at least a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? It's like, you just, you just know that he's in for that for the foreseeable future. So he answers, has to go. Uh, and I mentioned this because uh, a little bit later when Tony is helping clean up the body, Carmela test calls Livia to make sure that he actually, that's actually where he went. Tony answers, no one's there, hang up. It's a little moment, but Carmela does that kind of test call in. And uh, yeah, Tony shows up. He could be walking into his death. This could be an elaborate trap. So Tony arms himself. He walks in armed, ready to go in case somebody's there to pounce on him. I mean, it's not impossible that Janice could have led Tony right into his, his death here, but unlikely. Uh, Livia's knocked out from some Nebutals. Ma. Uh, <laughs> this is also, I mean, Livia, I'm sorry, not Livia, <laughs> Freudian slip. Janice yeah. has been in part with Richie moving against Tony, at least manipulating the situation in that way. But then when Janice does this murder ad hoc, she doesn't plan it. She knows she has one option for yeah. who's going to help her. So once again, loyalty and betrayal are keeping close quarters yeah. because Tony, as Tony then demonstrates, is the only one yep. who can handle this. It's a similar thing to Junior, whereas I think Janice, had things gone a different way, would have gotten by just fine if Tony had been killed in this situation. And she was practically urging Richie to do it the entire season. Uh, she was all but telling him, Tony sure. is not going to treat you well. You need it to get should be you. Yeah, it exactly. should be you. Yeah, exactly. And now that it's <laughs> now that it absolutely is not him, uh, she is <laughs> she's just hurting to the only thing she can, which is uh, Tony here. And he steps in. He does the he does his he 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 becomes the the knight uh, to save the day here. He cleans it up. He takes him like once his moment initial shock is over. He takes charge. Give me your clothes. Give me your phone. You know whatever. Everything you got on. Where's the gun? If anyone calls this in, you don't say shit. He's he's taking charge. He's doing what a good gangster would. He calls over Furio and Chris. Furio's devastated. He's going to have to crush the Cadillac. <laughs> yeah, he's more <laughs> upset about the car than about Richie, of course. <laughs> Very good detail. Yeah, yeah. so funny. Um, they uh, take him to Satriales. Very darkly comic scene there. This is going to be a while before I eat anything from Satriales. Oh, yuck. That has to have happened at some point in mob history as somebody was butchered at an actual butcher shop. And God, I'm, crazy. I imagine frequently. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Yeah, no kidding. So that's crazy, but that happens. They butcher him up. They take him out. Janice is beside herself, crying, clutching on to Tony as he's taking Richie out in bags. Uh, and, you know, just, just crazy. And then uh, we get this really nutty scene after we touch back in on the pussy thing at the hospital and then we come back to this this really nutty scene between tony and olivia it's the first time they've been in the same room since season what one. a scene Oof. nancy marchand did such a good job here especially considering that you know i think at this point she's starting to get a little sick and under the weather and it was getting harder to shoot with her at this point i think uh, she was getting a little she, she was having some health issues at this point in her life uh, but boy, oh boy, this was rough uh, to watch. Tony defends Janice to her. What kind of a chance does she have with you as her mother? Uh, probably jilted her. And then she just like gives him the double twist there. I suppose now you're not going to kiss me. You're cruel. He runs out, falls. 
she laughs at him. It's sort of reminiscent of the story Tony tells in season one where Johnny Boy, the only time he remembers his mother having a moment of joy is when Johnny fucking fell down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> she warps between uh, sob sobbing and laughter pretty easily. Yeah. It's it's pretty funny to watch. Oh, yeah. What do we make of this really crazy scene? This is a nutty, I mean, this is a wild scene here between Tony and Livia. Again, and Janice. The, the payoff from season one, a big one, the emotional nakedness also the weirdness and the denial of it even though it's a defense of janice it's fatalistic yeah what chance did she have look i know my sister is a piece of shit but it's mostly your fault yeah that's essentially what's happening here and the denial system is there like it's not that what tony is saying about livia in many cases isn't true but he's just not wrestling with what happened here he thinks like oh you you, you were kind of like a shitty mother that's the least of her yeah. sins. Yeah. And uh, Tony is trying to deal with it. I feel for him in some way, but obviously this kind of interaction isn't going to save him. I think it just, it, it frustrates and upsets him more. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Paul said it better than I could, so I'm not going to try to to reiterate that necessarily. I just want to say that uh, Livia is a total wrecking ball in this scene. So yeah. even with uh, the the brief screen time and the few lines she has, she's just devastating. Yep. And then uh, I'm going to describe, we basically have three scenes left. Uh, I'm going to describe them kind of rapid fire here. I feel like we could do another hour on this episode, but we are running out of time here, boys. So I want to just mention the last couple scenes, give you a chance to get any last thoughts out on these scenes and on the episode as a whole, and then we'll wrap it home bring it all home. But uh, essentially we get Silvio visiting arena. We're putting a button on that uh, story. He brings your 75 K that's not chump change folks. Oh no. Uh, and um, you know, kind of gives her a talking to telling her not to get too hung up on any one thing. He mentions the book uh, passages uh, <laughs> and yeah. uh, that's what we've titled our episode this week. Yeah. Yeah. Our episode title is passages. Um, passages is a, a fairly popular book by Gail Shee, um, the, the full title of which being Passages, Predictable Crises of Adult Life. He is trying to talk to her in a very similar way to actually we have heard Richie April speak in the past of just like, you know, there are stages of life, doors open, they close, uh, and it's it's time for her, for Irina, to close this door. $75,000 will certainly help you to move on with your life and to forget about this man. Also appreciating Silvio doing his job here as essentially the queen on a chessboard. This is, Silvio is Tony's like get shit done piece. Like yes. I need this done right now. Silvio, go kill Richie. Silvio, go deal with Irina. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciated his presence in this episode as that, but he, it yeah, makes him an endearing from, character that he can not only resolve Tony's business problems, but personal ones as well, you know? Absolutely. And yeah, passages, the passages of life, we go through these doors and sometimes the exits are incredibly quick, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes life just moves so quickly and you are just so swept up in it. I mean, one moment Janice is ready to be living in this beautiful castle with her handsome prince, <laughs> define that how you will. And the next moment she's on a bus out of town. I mean, how, how quickly things can move. Well, I guess that's really well said in the last three scenes are three scenes in which Tony has to deal with the different women in his life. Mm -hmm. You could argue quite smartly that he sent Silvio and a lot of money as payoff uh, because this is getting to be too much. She's calling the house. This You have to cut it off. It's over. Give her some money. Like, stop bothering me. And also Tony does not go himself. That would likely feed too much into 
the the night at the opera energy that Irina and Tony's mother both have. So send send your smart emissary as the get shit done piece, as Jordan says, much more emotionally fraught is putting Janice on the bus. Her again, something emotional for me was what's wrong with our family? Like, oh. yeah, what the fuck? Um, and then the last one, the woman who cannot be dispensed with, uh, mm. the constant one, the really smart one, I have to say, mm. um, is Carmela in the last scene. I can't say enough good about the acting in this last scene. These two are just so good. Tony is just absolutely fried. He's got a bit of a five o'clock shadow. He seems exhausted. He's in no position to deal with her uh, at her best. And she is just ready. Uh, she's planning a trip to Rome. Well, first of all, they have this great exchange where Carmela figures it out and Tony tells her without telling her. Has this great line, Carmela, after 18 years, don't make me make you an accessory after the fact. And she gets it. And there's that moment of realization. She says, this that was not a marriage made in heaven. Yeah, no uh, kidding. <laughs> you know, to quote uh, Vince McMahon, it was a match made in heaven and a match made in hell. You know? <laughs> yeah. But uh, man, it was uh, crazy. Uh, this scene makes me so, mm, it just makes me feel so many things. The way the music swells in, the way she delivers that last line and just fucking Tony saved the day, but he still is helpless when Carmela wants to stake her position in such a strong way. She tells him, I'm going to Rome. You're going to have to shuttle AJ around, find uh, find Meadow a new tennis coach or whatever, because if I have to do it, I just might commit suicide. Ouch. And he's just sit, sitting. He's just, I love that lingering shot on him as uh, I save the world. Today. Yeah. Save the world today by the Eurythmics uh, comes on. And um, Carmela just walks out and we get that long shot on Tony. Just a great way to end it. Thoughts on this scene, guys, and thoughts on the episode proper. We're going to wrap this up here. I think my final thought is that I would posit that even though Tony does kind of save everyone at the end of the episode, that perhaps it's actually Janice who's the knight in white satin. I mean, she's the one that literally appears in sort of the white, perhaps satin wedding dress. She kind of saves herself from her own situation mm. by killing Richie, but inadvertently, and she doesn't realize this, she saves Tony from any potential harm from Richie. I mean, I know he's already ordered the hit on him, but she doesn't know that. And uh, there is something charming in having that agency and being the person that saves yourself in your own story. I mean, yes, he gets her out of town safely, but she's the one that actually pulls the trigger. I'm actually going to give her the the credit there in terms yeah. of really taking care of herself and, and removing Richie, getting him off the board. Her action, you could argue, also removes what, what Tony set out to do partway through this episode is to kill Richie. That would presumably solve one problem. Janice, because she kills Richie, now has exposure and needs to get out of the state. That solves two problems for Tony. Yeah. So the so again, like the irony of not even taking an action and getting out ahead. And what Carmela refers to in this scene, that's why we chose it for our pull quote, that that was not a marriage made in heaven, I think is because of the reality that penetrates our denial about our relationships, our alliances, and Carmela, I guess, coming to operate in a very realistic, pragmatic way. And I was proud of her in a way, having this agency, not to mention her last line is very playful and funny, yeah. but it also made me feel sad because of in some way what she has to do. Um, she warns Janice in that wonderful scene in the dress shop, in a year tops, you're gonna have to accept a Gumar. But what Carmela accepts, I think at the end of the episode is 
that the only emotional leverage that she has is using the Gumar's line mm. and, and having a certain manipulation of Tony. Um, so it was very playful in a way, but left me kind of feeling like achy as well, which I guess is the complexity that this whole episode played out so brilliantly. What a what a, and for me, what a set of emotions to leave the episode on. Uh, you, you get like a kind of like a, oh, yeah, Carmela, like for sticking it to him in, in such a satisfying way. But you also pity Tony uh, and, and admire him for coming through for his sister in a moment when she needed him. You feel a sense of relief that Richie is out of Tony's life and out of the picture, and also that Janice is out of the picture. All in all, though, I'd say it was a pretty good trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also found a sense of dread. You know, I can't allow myself to get happy about the fact that Richie is gone and Janice is gone and Tony and Carmela seem to have found some peace for the moment uh, with Carmela coming out on top of that exchange and Tony accepting it. You know, Tony's going to have to give a little for what he's taken. Um, but it's also, you know, it's, there's also a very ominous note here is uh, the, the, the uh, dreamy eurythmic song here. The lyrics, hey, hey, I saved the world today. Everybody's happy now. The bad thing's gone away. And you could interpret that as well. Richie's gone and Janice is gone and everything's going to look up from here. But we know everything's not looking up from here. It's actually quite the opposite. Things are going to a much darker place next week. And uh, I can't wait to cover that with you guys. Oh, yes. And I can't wait to cover that with all of you out there who have been joining our podcast. We're about to hit two full seasons of the Sopranos podcast. Hell yeah, guys. Uh, next week, get ready. Get your uh, beach shoes. We're going to the fun house. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And this is the Sopranos podcast. We'll see you next time on the finale. Got myself a girl.